0: This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put together in sort of a chronological flow. Uh, Ben, last time we we looked at Jesus' teaching on repentance and right living in the midst of some misguided loyalties that were swirling all around him. And today we're going to dive into more into Luke. We're We're still in Luke for a few more weeks, at some... Episodes that appear really only largely in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at a couple of parables parables that deal with people and their teachings about the right choices and not so right choices that Jesus is making by his amazing, amazing storytelling. One of those, the first one is in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, and it's the parable of the lost son also known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's really the parable of the two sons or the, or the loving father or the prodigal father. You might say there's a lot of angles you could take on it, but at the heart of the story are these two brothers. Now I know that you have a brother and I grew up with brothers. Uh, you, you're the older or the younger brother in your, your dealing. How'd that work out for you?
1: We are uh, Irish twins, so we're about 15 months apart. I'm the oldest Uh, but I can't recall a time without him. Yeah, I bet not. Yeah.
0: So that, that oldest, uh, status or responsibility or thumpism or whatever you, however that worked out in your family, you know, brothers can, um, be fiercely loyal or just fierce, right? That's right. Just dependent on the day. Yeah. It depends on the day. I, I grew up in a kind of a yours, mine, and ours family. and my parents were the hours part, so I grew up with two brothers that were from my mom's first marriage, and then myself and my younger brother from my mom and dad's marriage. So anyway, you look at it, I'm either number six of seven, or three of four, or one of two, And so there's a the confusion there, but with my, my younger brother, I, I suppose I have some older brother tendencies, yet in our household growing up, there were four boys, and two of which were older than me. So I relate to this story a little bit. Sure. I don't know if you do. The parable is an interesting one. Some some have said the parable of the prodigal son is the best story ever told in the history of humankind. It's an interesting claim I've heard made a few times. It's just a remarkable story that seems to have layer upon layer upon layer built within it. And we will not have time to go through, I think, every single aspect of this word-for-word in Luke 15, verse 11 to 32, but I do want to sort of highlight the contrast between these two guys, the older and younger brother, and then we'll be looking here in a moment at the next chapter, Luke 16, and another comparison of two men, it's the rich man and Lazarus. So if we can kind of hold those in tension with each other and see if we can figure anything out about what Jesus might be driving at. Let's pick it up in Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That that alone would have caused the listener in the story to gasp because for a younger son to tell his dad, especially perhaps in that culture, but any culture really, "Hey, you're not dead yet. Can I have my inheritance now?" Right is a, kind of a bold little statement to make.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's as if he's telling his dad that you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance now.
0: And and for whatever reason in the story, Jesus, you know, he's he's making a comparison. If you look back to Luke chapter 15, verse one, we get context that the religious leaders were coming at Jesus and and they're really trying to Jesus is really trying to point out to them the loving nature of God and so clearly in the story the heavenly father is the is the father figure in this story and he divided his property between them he he let his younger son have his way even though it was the wrong thing to do is that what God does with us
1: does God continue to love us? Does He continue to pursue us? Absolutely. Does God desire for us to? Does God give us freedom? Um, I, I guess to, you know, sadly to to go our own way. Um, in essence, yes. But so does God you're saying does, He
0: lets us go our own way, but He doesn't let us go?
1: Yeah, that's fair. Is that it? Yeah, you know, I think about Jonah. You know, God tells Jonah uh, to, to go to, to go to Nineveh and then Jonah turns tail and he runs, he runs away, uh, from God. And yet God continues to pursue him, continues to call him back. Um, in this, in this sense, you know, if the, the father is depicted as the, as God, the father, what ends up happening ultimately is that the younger son, is given freedom in essence to go. Then he experiences the consequences of his own sin, of his own actions, and what does he do? He comes running back to the father. And so sometimes, you know, even as a as a parent, I can't control my children. I can't. I'm not going to constrain them. Um, I'm going to nurture them toward a given end. If they choose uh, their own way, that's the choice that they're ultimately uh, going to make. Um, and they're going to have to deal with the consequences of those choices, and so, uh, and and I continue to love them, continue to pursue them as this father does. Can he runs out to the son? Yeah, this this young guy certainly
0: paid the consequences. In verse thirteen, n- not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, which would have been a sizable amount if they're only for two sons. I believe. If I remember right, the older son gets two-thirds of the estate, the younger son a third. So he's now pocketing a third of the value of his father's property, which we know from the story is sizable. And it says in verse 13, he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living after he had spent everything. Now, this guy's got a lot of cash. And he still managed to spend everything in the story. I I would guess it would again cause the listener in that day, the Jewish listener, to gasp. But after he had spent everything, it says, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Here comes the double gasp. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And I I have some friends who are hog farmers and uh good friends from one of my my years in one of my churches and
1: well so what's the big deal?
0: He's out there, you know, helping feed some pigs.
1: Yeah, this would uh, cut against every uh Jewish law known to man, the idea that he would be um you know pigs were considered to be unclean uh jews did not eat pork they did not touch pigs they did not farm pigs and so the idea that he is a uh, is is feeding pigs um yeah that would have upended the the, the in the middle of the story like you said that the gasp would have come yeah so he he fed pigs he went off to a distant country which
0: had its own level of making him unclean with the pagan gentiles mm-hmm. And we've learned later in the story that he spent his money on prostitutes. There's the trifecta right there. This, this guy should not have been allowed to come home, right? I mean, right. It, it's, that's it. But he came to his senses, verse 17, and said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. I imagine as the listeners hearing, it's a story, right? But imagine as the listeners hearing hearing the story, he's picturing this, this young guy walking with his tail between his legs, slouched over, thinking, uh, is my dad going to take me back? Is he going to let me, not take me back as a son, he says, but as a hired servant? Will he do that? Do you think that that's the common thought that many people have toward God? Because God is the father figure in the story that I've messed up so badly that if I go back to God or if I try to make my way to to God or the church or anything like that, I'm just not worthy? Is that a, is that a common th- thread that Jesus is, is pulling out of the fabric here in this story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, even uh, myself and coming to Christ, I wrestled a lot with the, uh, in essence, the guilt of my past and this feeling, this persistent feeling that I needed to uh, clean myself up, to clean myself up before I stepped foot uh, in a church. Um, I always I, I had this uh, sense of needing to make myself right, ultimately with God, to make myself worthy of his love, uh, in essence.
0: What turned to you? That from realizing that it's not you who has to do it, but God who does it.
1: It's it's kind of interesting. One of the uh, one of the things I wrestled with, like I could intellectually understand the the nature of God's uh, justifying grace, the idea that through Christ alone I was made right with God, and yet I still could not escape uh, this sense of of overwhelming guilt from past actions, from past mistakes, from things I knew that I had engaged in that were. Defiant or against what God would will, what God would desire uh, for my life, and as I wrestled uh, with that guilt, um, a dear brother in Christ and, I, and I've shared this before, and so I know many uh, who are in uh, the church will have heard this story. But a dear brother in Christ uh, came to me one time and he said, "Ben, how do you think God sees you?" And I and I said, "I think God's embarrassed uh, ultimately by mm-hmm. me." And I, I think that, that God sees me uh, persistently as kind of this wayward child, this failure. And, uh, and his dear brother in Christ said, you know, Ben, you could go stand in the middle of the Superdome on a, on, a, uh, you know, on a sold out Sunday of a Saints game, stand in the middle of the dome, have all your sins announced before the public, and God would still claim you as his own because of Christ. Not as someone that he is ashamed of or embarrassed of, but as a dear, beloved child. And so he, this, this brother in Christ really pressed into me, um, beginning to understand the nature of how God sees me. And so one of the things that I, I do even today, uh, every morning, you know, I begin my day uh, in prayer reminding myself of how God sees me, that God sees me and has embraced me through the work of Christ as a beloved child, a forgiven a uh, child um, that God, you know, sees me as is uh, again cherished and beloved, and uh, so I speak those truths into my heart uh, every day, and then pray uh, for my life to be a reflection of that love, because that that love leads to repentance. That love leads to a life that reflects the the will and desire and in the, in the love of Christ. Your friend is exactly right because
0: that's how God is depicted. In this masterful story of Jesus, where in verse 20. While this young man was still a long way off walking home, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, I guess from one end zone line to another in the Superdome, threw his <sighs> arms around him and kissed him. The son began in his rehearsed speech, father, I've sinned against heaven. And against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He couldn't finish his speech. His father cut him off. The father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his pig manure-stained feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. There was no sense in this story of him saying, you've messed up. You've got to come to me the right way. You have to do the right penance. You have to do all these things. The father just said, welcome home. It's a pretty cool story. And I think that your friend was right when he spoke those words to you. But in the story, it's not completely that way because the older son didn't like it. It's in verse 25 through 30. For those of you who are listening, read through that story and, and pick the, the contrast between this older son and the younger son for yourself. But just as a, a kind of a nutshell version of it, what do you think the conflict was between, in this story between the older son and the younger son? I might even say between the older son and his father.
1: Yeah he sees he would see the actions of the the father is is ultimately unjust um he doesn't he he feels the older son feels entitled uh, in essence because in his own mind he's done everything that is right and good and so he looks at the the actions of the younger son and doesn't doesn't believe that he's deserving of the father's embrace uh or deserving of uh of of this reconciled uh, relationship and ultimately, I'm sure, because I think it would have been assumed culturally as they they read this, is the younger son is embraced by the father and welcomed home. Ultimately, the older son is going to lose out on the fullness of what his inheritance might have been because now there's a cost to the older son as well by the father's uh, actions of embracing um, the younger son. There is kind of a cost two people who are Christians, when
0: new people come into the faith or into the church or into the small group or into the Sunday school class or what have you, they change the environment and it's sometimes a difficult thing for seasoned Christians to be able to fully embrace the new person who's coming to faith. But that is exactly what this story is about. We're gonna we're gonna jump to Luke sixteen verses nineteen to thirty one another fairly long parable of Jesus and it's this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus again two different guys are contrasted by Jesus in the nineteen seventies I remember this mini series that was on and it was called Rich Man Poor Man and I and I watched it with my mom I was a teenager yeah or an early teenager and I watch it with my mom. I don't know if it might've been just out of compassion or guilt. I, I can't remember because remember I grew up with a house, there were four boys. And so we watched Monday night football and we watched, you know, we like my mom never got to choose, put it that way. She She was, she was the, not the one who was like my dad and my, and the boys and whatever else, we all seem to do her thing, our thing, that is. And so when my mom wanted to watch this, um, I remember watching this series with her on Rich Man, Poor Man, and that's what the story is. It's a story of rich man, poor man. It's in Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. You can't get any different than that. A guy dressed in royalty and just living the life, and another guy who's so down on his luck that he can't even shoo away the dogs who are licking the sores off of his body. that That's a contrast. Again, it's a story that Jesus is telling. He's trying to drive at a point here in these stories. And in verse 22, Luke 16, 22, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with that poor man Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send the beggar Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. You know, in in life, I mean, Jesus, again, he's, he's touching on a common experience of people, and in life, it's all too easy to ignore the poor, the downcast, the broken. In fact, I I believe often they are invisible to us. Unless, of course, we have a need. And this this fellow in the story had a need. He had an eternal need because he was in agony in the fires of hell. Uh, Jesus is really touching on a common human experience here, isn't he?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: He goes on in verse 25, Abraham replied... Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. It's a picture, a contrast between heaven and hell. He goes on, verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So it's permanent. Heaven and, heaven and hell are a, are a permanent fixture, a permanent place that we we need to get our act together. We need to get our heart right in this life because there's, there's no do-over after death, is there?
1: No, what's bound on earth is going to be bound up in heaven, and there is no, uh, yeah, upon death, there is no so-called second chance. So this guy
0: answered in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I can relate to this story. I have five brothers. There's seven of us total. I have one sister, and there were six boys. I have five brothers. And he wa- he wants, you know, he's dead, and he wants somehow Lazarus, who's dead, to be able to go back and give a warning, rise from the dead, or show up in like the ghost of his life past or something and give a warning to his brother so they don't end up where he ended up. So they make better decisions with their life than he made with his life. There is a, I think there's a longing for people who are facing life and death and who are facing the realities of the, of heaven and hell to want their loved ones, to people they really care about, to know to know the truth, the real truth. But I find that we often don't do that as much as we should. We, we don't have this kind of desire to say, do whatever it takes for my brothers or whatever, or for whatever it takes for my friends or my neighbors or my coworkers. Like, do whatever it takes until we're at some kind of a crisis mode. And then that can grab our attention for a short time period think 9-11, short time period, people got really serious for a sh- couple weeks, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Think COVID, we just got distant for a long time. Why is it, do you think, that that n- until we're faced with life or d- death issues or some kind of a crisis in our, in our lives or in society at large? Why is it that most of the time we're not we're, we're not paying attention to the poor, but we're also not really having this kind of passion for our brothers, our coworkers,
1: our neighbors? What is it about us that you live your life, I live mine? Yeah, yeah I, th- I, th- I mean, there's a, a lot of different things I think we could say uh, in light of that. Um, one is just you know, in the in, from a Western culture standpoint, we don't live under the umbrella of death and suffering every day. I mean, do we experience suffering to experience death, but yes, but not uh, to the magnitude that many other, uh, many other places do. And so, you know, when I, when I visit, when I visited, uh, places in in Africa and and India, um, and and some other, some other areas globally, uh, Haiti, folks that you, that you, uh, Folks that you go to worship with, folks that you're engaged in Christian community with, they live under the umbrella of death. And so they have a really uh, a, a real sense of their own mortality, and they live in light of that. Um, two things that come out of that is one, they're very intentional with the life they live as a means to to edify God as a means to uh, make Jesus known um, to to family friends, to their community. Uh, the other part of that is they, they have a, a joy that often is not present among many Western Christians, uh, because their hearts are so much more rooted in eternity. They themselves seem to live in light of that eternity. They have this eternal joy present on earth because they see life and they, they get it. They know life is going to get better than this, you know, much, much like, uh, the, the beggar here, like Lazarus here, um, who suffered throughout his life, who I'm, I'm sure like was very aware of his own mortality, and yet in eternity is by Abraham's side, right? Where every Jew wants to be is by Abraham's uh, side. And so they have a sense of that eternal joy uh, in the present. And for many Westerners, while we talk about Heaven. Oftentimes, we talk about it in in some ways in unbiblical ways, um, to where we make heaven out just to be a, a little bit of a better manifestation of what we, the things that we enjoy here on earth. Yeah, there's going to be nonstop golf and steaks, and right? That's our view of you know, fishing, whatever, whatever
0: you like to do, right? Isn't but we have <laughs> the, we
1: walk through life with this sense like it can't get much better than this, and that's how we live. And so, so in these yeah.
0: stories, then what you're saying is, in the first one, we we naturally relate more to the older son who was faithful and stayed at home and did the, did, the, did the task. And we also relate more to the rich man who's got life easy. And in both these stories, Jesus says, be careful. If you are resting on that, that misses the point of the gospel. It misses the point of God's heart. And it's not like he says, go be a wild younger son who wastes all your money on prostitutes. Or go be somebody who has so many sores and so little energy that you can shoo off the dogs. I don't think that's the point. But if you're relying on what you got in this life to get you through this one and into the next one, be careful.
1: Yes. And I think one of the things, two two things that can often often keep us from recognizing our need for God is self-righteousness like the older brother who thought he was entitled um to ultimately to the to the father's to the inheritance he's entitled to it because of his good mm-hmm. works because of his actions and then on the on the other side of that we've got uh, the rich man who doesn't recognize his need for God because he's self-sufficient
0: dangerous dangerous way to live good thoughts well, folks, if you want to go uh, in more about this life of Jesus that we're pursuing, jump in just right where we are. If you haven't started yet, would like to do that? Go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app. Click on the Life of Jesus link and just start now. Learn more about what Jesus had to say and what he did for you and for me. Next time, we'll be taking a look at living in this life in the now and not yet kingdom. Until then, may God bless.